The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. I want to start by telling you a bit of a story tonight in about the way that me and my sister, 16 months younger than I, would try to one-up each other. It, the, the house that I grew up in, I don't know it, where, where or when my mother got this, this walking doll. Okay, uh, its name is Lulu Bell, right? Right? I have tried to explain to my mom several times, Mom, this thing is right out of a horror film, okay? It's one of these that when you, when it, when it lays down, its eyes close, but then when it stands up, its eyes open and it peers right into your soul. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Have you seen these things? Well, what we would do, me and Audrey, my sister, we would make it a habit to, to take Lulu Bell and plant it unknowingly at different places. So, you know, Audrey would go into her closet one morning, open up the closet door, and ah, you know, and I'm like, Yahtzee. Okay, another time. But then another time, you know, and, and you know, we'd, we'd sit on it for a while, right? So it would, you know, four, six, eight weeks would pass, pass, and then some morning I would be, you know, going to to take a shower, pull the curtain back, and Lulu Bell standing there, you know, first thing in the morning. Okay, that, yeah, the thing scares you. In fact, my mom still has this thing, and there was a season where my four-year-old refused to go in any room that that doll was in. And frankly, I don't blame him. But it was, it, it was this game that Audrey and I played as kids, and we've played it, well, we continue to play it whenever we're at, at, uh, at my mom's place. Uh, it's this game of, of, of one-upsmanship of competition. And anytime there is this one upsmanship, there is a type of competition like this, there's no doubt that the peace is going to be disturbed. And, and that's what we want to talk a little bit more about tonight as we conclude a series that we've been doing throughout January, uh, where we've been looking at this idea of biblical peace. Now, to do a bit of a review for you, where this kind of came out from is, uh, do you guys remember this holiday that we celebrated a while back called Christmas? Okay, it seems to me that it feels like Christmas was a long time ago. But I found myself thinking about at Christmas this, this great, uh, uh, proclamation of glory to God in the, in the highest and on earth peace. Well then, shortly before Jesus would go to the cross, an assurance that he tells his disciples is, my peace I bring and it's my peace I leave. And through reflecting on this and reading some other texts, I found myself reflecting on this great gift of peace that I believe God wants us to know, that I believe Jesus wants us to live into. And so we're going to conclude that tonight. Some of the things that we've talked about have been in those times that we feel lonely, that we know a God that is pursuing us before we ever pursue God. We've talked about um, uh, peace and finding that in, in hostility and in war and in conflict and, and trying to reconcile those things. Last week, we got to hear from Ryan in hearing about finding peace in chaos. Uh, 
And so tonight we want to continue and, in, in fact, finish up our little ex- exploration by looking at what does the back end of the New Testament have to say about peace. And to do that, we're going to look uh, at some of the words of this guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, who authored most of the second half of the New Testament. And a few things I want to tell you about Paul before we, we get started. Uh, because I think there are a few notes about his life that make these words uh, that he will share uh, all the more fascinating. That Paul was a guy who took his, uh, he grew up taking his, his faith, his religion, very, very seriously. He was raised uh, in, in a, uh, what you might call a very strict type of Jewish tradition, and he took it very seriously. So much so that as as uh, Jesus uh, was crucified, dead, and, and buried, and raised, and as the church was beginning to expand, Paul was one of these guys that loved to inflict a little bit of harm, to persecute Christians, until he had a rather dramatic experience in coming to Jesus. And all of a sudden, his life changed dramatically, and he made it his, his he, he received a very special call to encourage this growing small group of people that we now call the church, that we now call Christians, that we now call followers of Christ, whatever. Well, at this point, there is a concern that he addresses, and it is the age-old question of who's in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't, who's good, who's bad, who's light, who's dark, where is the dividing line? And it's a wall and an, that he wants to break down and an idea that he wants to get rid of from the church. So that's where we're headed tonight. To do that, we are going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. If you brought your Bible, you can open up to that now. Uh, and so... Uh, Actually, let's just jump right in, shall we? Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin at the 11th verse, and it says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, what's all this stuff about circumcision? If you're a little bit confused by that, that's okay. There's probably about half the room that might even be feeling a little bit uncomfortable about it, and that's okay as well. What that is, is, is simply this, that it was, it was a mark of the flesh that would, that noted somebody who was Jewish, um, who would have called themselves, in the words of the Apostle Paul, a citizen of Israel, somebody who would have taken that identification very, very seriously. And as such, there was a growing divide among those who were previously a very religious as Jews and those who were perhaps new converts in this church and going, hey, who's in and who's out? And what Paul is is really trying to say this whole trying to figure out who's in and who's out is really not all that helpful. In fact, did you catch that lovely articulation 
of the gospel in verse 13 right there. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If you get nothing else out of tonight, will you underline that verse and will you believe it? That's the gospel right there. The gospel is that Jesus has drawn near. Hear that tonight. It's a wonderful articulation of the gospel and it is good news for us. Let's continue in verse 14. For he, Jesus, sorry about that. (laughs) He, I see I woke you up. He himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So he continues, right? So instead of an us and them versus them mentality, Do you hear what the Apostle Paul's doing? He's saying, hey, take down anything that separates. Take down that dividing wall. Take down, take away the the hostility. Uh, The the image that I have right here is is the image of, I mean, honestly, it's a terrifying image that I've seen play out now in my first grader. It's when all the kids have to line up and you pick teams. Kind of like this, uh, this scene from the Sandlot, okay? Where, where you, where, where they're in, and there's a dialogue that happens, right? Oh, well, this person, he's, he's too slow. You know, he, he's too short. Oh, this guy can't catch. Whatever. I, I mean, honestly, it's a beautiful, brutal process to, to sit there and hear who's in and who's out. You're killing me, Smalls, right? Instead, it is what Paul is saying is, I want you to come together. I want us to remove the walls. I want the two to become one. Let's continue in verse 19. Consequently, you who are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Wow, isn't this just dripping with good news? This is the whole idea that God, we already talked about God is near. And what the apostle Paul believes is that God is actually in you. Instead of being in this temple of bricks and mortar in one place, what he's saying is that the presence of God is so near, it's actually in you. You are the temple of Christ. You are the house of Christ. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? And the promise is that you will be built up. This is good, good news. Okay, great piece of passage. What does it tell us about pursuing peace, about living into peace, about claiming this gift of peace that I have come to understand as one of the central, one of the the prominent promises of Scripture. 
Okay, I want to, I want to give you three things tonight uh, before we sing a couple more songs. First is this. It's simply remember. And it's remembering an identity. It's remembering who you are. In that first section that we read, the Apostle Paul remembers this, this young church, this church in the first century. These are brand new Christians. He remembers, he, he asked, asked them to, there was a time when you were an outsider, separate from Christ. Remember that. Now, here's what I want to offer up to you tonight, that the antithesis of remember is not forget, but the antithesis of remember is dismember. Okay, now if you need a visual on this, I'm going to help you out. Okay, let's, uh, you know, there's, there's a big Star Wars craze right now with The Force Awakens, but there is this, this moment in uh, episodes five and six, first in episode five, where we see a dismemberment, right? You remember this when Darth Vader cuts off Luke Skywalker's right arm with his lightsaber, the whole thing is there. Luke is, is learning something. It's, yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a gruesome scene. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and then of course, in Return of the Jedi, at one point, Luke actually cuts off Darth Vader's hand. Now, a couple of weeks ago, there was a conversation at my house with Sam Tompkins and Isaac Dodrell where I never realized this, but in Star Wars, there's this thing called the rule of twos, that there are always pairs in Star Wars. And so it makes sense to us that both Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, father and son, would have a bit of a dismemberment. There was a great meme out there, too, uh, that says, hey, Dad, how'd you get that cool robot hand? Come here. Come here, son, and I'll show you. Okay. <laughs> What happens in dismemberment? In dismemberment, there is a disconnection. It's, it's being disconnected from part of who you are. Being dismembered is being detached. And what we are being called to remember is that there was a, is that we need a savior. There was a time when we, when people, when humanity was separate from Christ. And now we have been brought together. We need to remember who we are and who we are are people in need. We're people who sin. And even in our better moments where we might not find ourselves in a season of, of giving into sin, there's no doubt that sin still impacts us. My memory begins with the night that my parents separated and subsequently divorced. Honestly, it's a memory that I wish I could erase from my memory. But no doubt, it's a memory of an event that has shaped me uh, for life, for good. And it's a painful one. But I think part of what the Apostle Paul is trying to do when he says, remember that you were one in need, is that when I look back, when, when I think about that moment, I'm able to see how much more God has redeemed than I typically give God credit for. When I remember that I am a man in need and frankly have always been a man in need, the gospel again makes sense. It's an, when we remember, when we remember our own story, when we are put together with our own story, we begin to see how we are also joined together with Christ. How we, how our lives have been redeemed. How we have been reconciled to Him. How we have actually been 
membered with Christ. Okay, we are membered with Christ, which means we are to be one. And so we remember that we are a people in need in a culture uh, that celebrates being self-made and successful by our own hard work. Remember, remember that we are people in need. Two is this. Be joined to others. If we remember that Christ makes us one with God, and of course that has an individual impact, uh, we, it makes sense that as God does that with others, we are going to be joined to them. Now here's the thing that uh, I'm going to say tonight that, that could be the, the thing that, that you could have a conversation in your core group or whatever, uh, wherever you might talk about things and disagree with me, and that's okay. But I'm going to say, I'm going to say this, that a sense of individual peace, having my own personal individual peace, I believe that it is something that is actually impossible. Okay? Peace is not something that is intended for us to be hoarded. Now, what am I not saying here? I'm not saying be anxious. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying be nervous. I'm not saying work harder. But what I am saying is that this idea of shalom is a bigger idea that includes community. Yes, the individual peace that we feel from the assurance of God's promise, the promise of that nearness, of God's presence with us, and the hope that we have of salvation should give us an individual peace. But as we do that, it is an individual peace that should join us together with the person on your left, the person on your right, the person right behind you, the person that you meet in class, the person that you live with that doesn't take out the garbage, the group project member that doesn't show up, okay? You are membered with all these people. You see, shalom is not merely an individual thing. It is communal. It's a communal wholeness. So we can't limit peace to just our individual relationship with God. If you do that, your faith will be boring. It needs to be lived out in community. That's what the text means by mentioning this new humanity in verse 14. In this word, reconciliation. Now, what is reconciliation? To me, reconciliation is one of those words that, that is deeply kind of esoteric and religious. Let me tell you what it means. Reconciliation on just a, on a base level is the restoration of harmony between two parties. Now, when we talk about it in the sense of what we see here in Ephesians, Paul is referring to the restoration of God's relationship with sinful humanity through Jesus. Okay, so, so we are reconciled first to God, but as God reconciles individuals and lots of individuals, he reconciles us to each other. And so our response to that is what? To be reconciled with each other. Now, this is where one-upsmanship being right, having something to prove, can always get in the way. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but uh, it was, honestly, it was not that long ago, uh, because it was uh, right as my wife and I uh, were married, 
we were driving out to a, a friend's party out on the east side, and it was before it was before the days of like navigation systems and stuff that you can just punch in an address and you know, it pretty much does everything except drive the car for you at this point. But that's not far away either, I'm here to tell you, okay? <laughs> so we're, we're going to this place, and, and my wife is driving, and at one point I say, hey, I think we need to take a right, uh, a left here. And she says, no, it's, it's to the right. And I said, no, I, I'm, it's to the left, sweetheart. I, I know it is. And she said, nope, it's this way. Now, uh, I almost hesitate to share this story because um, it sounds like I'm throwing my wife under the bus, but I knew I was right. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, even as she continued to take us off course, you know, I'd heard it somewhere along the, 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 somewhere along the way, this whole proverb, I don't think it's in the Bible, but this whole proverb of happy wife, happy, Life. right? So I said, hey... Party's left, Julie wants to go right, let's go right, okay? So we're, we're driving in every, I mean, every 30 seconds, we're going further and further off course. And sure enough, after we continued going for probably another 20 minutes, Julie's like, okay, I, I think you were right, you know? Now, that's a, that's a fun story to tell in one where, I was more concerned with the harmony in the car than fighting with my wife on how to get this right. But no doubt we've all experienced situations where perhaps we cling to what is what we believe is right. We cling to our need to be right, to be recognized as smart, as competent, as intelligent. And in so doing, what do we do? We build up a wall between us and others. It's so hard to admit that we're wrong. It's so hard to know that we've hurt someone. And often ashamed that we do these things, what do we do? Instead of getting closer, we get further apart. Third, peace is a destructive and constructive act. Now, it can be hard. I'll say that it's hard for me to stand up and, and, and say peace is a destructive act. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That's why it has to go together with constructive. The Apostle Paul mentions this, that the dividing wall is coming down. That which separates religious and non-religious, right and wrong, comes down. The, that's the, the part, the destructive part. The constructive part, did you hear this at the end, is that you will be built up and the cornerstone will be Jesus. Now, I believe that when we start talking about this type of peace, this type of peace where there is assurance of our individual salvation, this type of peace that joins us together with others, and this type of peace that sends us to the, into a world that is destructive and constructive, I actually believe, you guys, that this is the faith that you want to live, that we want to live. I think it's exciting, but the reason that we don't is because it's hard and it's incredibly inconvenient. It doesn't allow us to stay in the complacent place that we might find ourselves. It means we work to break down the barriers that keep us apart. 
Now, what does that mean? What does that mean as if, if this orients us outward? What does it mean? It means that as those who follow Jesus and as those who seek to take down the walls that divide, we need to be concerned about things like racism. We need to be concerned about things like poverty. We need to be concerned about things like addiction and systemic, other systemic evils that keep us, that keep people not only from God, but keep us from each other. I'm so excited to know that there is, uh, that there's a growing group of students that want to gather and engage this question of race and the church and race and our culture and explore what does it mean for us to be reconciled, uh, to, to each other more than we experience that right now. Several years ago, I was volunteering at a homeless shelter here in Seattle. And I came across this amazing young man. And we were, it turns out we were exactly the same age uh, at the time. And what is striking as I interacted with this guy uh, throughout the evening was how much we had in common. We were both from relatively small towns. We both came from families that, uh, that were broken, that had, that had been fractured by, uh, by divorce. Uh, we both loved baseball. We both loved football. There was so much that it seemed that we have in common. It seemed that the only difference is that I seemed to have what I would call a cushion. And it was a cushion of people, a cushion of relationships. It was a group of people that advocated for me in all of that brokenness that lifted me up to give me opportunities. It was a group of people that were, that were there that honestly, that, that there was just no way I was ever going to spend a night on the street. You see, me and this guy were in so many ways so similar, but the difference was this group of people that somewhere along the line I had been joined with and this young man who I found to be uh, bright, um, incredibly intelligent, but also found the system to be working against him as a black man with a growing record. We have to deal with these things. The, uh, the president of Union Gospel Mission, a guy named Jeff Lilly, says, uh, for example, homelessness is not a resource issue. It's a relationship issue. You see, if we are going to get at the work of tearing down that which divides and building up the community on the cornerstone that is Jesus and participating in that, it, it means that we move into places that may be rather uncomfortable. On uh, Martin Luther King Day, a group of students and staff went to a breakfast downtown, and we got to hear pastor and activist John Perkins, and he said this, churches, communities, should be neighborhood communities of peace that include all. You guys, I want this. I want us to be that. What does it look like for us to be right here on a Tuesday night and for everybody that even comes close to us to know that we are a community of peace that includes all. I want that for us. I want that for you. 
I want to live that type of faith. What does it look like for us? It means grace and grace and grace and maybe even a little bit more grace. Perhaps some of you remember that uh, there was a, a, a shooting uh, last summer by a white supremacist in the South. And uh, nine people died in what was predominantly a, a black church. And it, the, um, over the, the course of this dialogue, a group of self-identified uh, Republicans had for years been advocating for the display of the Confederate flag, this symbol of, of slavery and segregation. And shortly after this shooting, it stopped. One commentator said this, politicians throughout the South were calling for the displays of this divisive symbol to be taken down. Why? Well, it wasn't the killings in Charleston alone. It was the enormous grace shown by the relatives of those slain who somehow bestowed Christian forgiveness on the shooter when he appeared in court. Instead of rioting and continuing the chain of hate, black and white members of the Charleston community responded to a terrible act of racist violence by marching peacefully together in grief and solidarity together, demonstrating the same kind of love, dignity, and strength once embodied by Martin Luther King, doing, Martin Luther King Jr. Grace, mercy, justice. This is, this is the church that Paul is calling us to become. Uh, Janie forwarded this beautiful image of justice to me that I, that I want to show you. And perhaps it resonates with me so quickly because it is, the image is simply access to something I love, baseball. But you see, this is the way that Jesus would see this idea of justice. This idea of all getting access. What if we, as a community of grace and community of justice, what if we are constructing those little boxes, those little things that say, you have access to the grace of Jesus Christ. You have access to a community that's going to join you together and take you on an adventure, and you are going to be part of this group that is this outpost of grace and mercy and love and justice in the world. It's not easy to do that, but that's what justice is, giving this type of access to all. It's messy, it's inconvenient, it's hard, and it won't allow us to keep playing those games of one-up. It requires that we stop the hostility and demonstrate grace. And so we conclude this look at biblical peace, and I want to conclude it by saying this. Okay, peace is not a feeling. Peace is a relationship. It's a relationship that says your sin is wiped away and you are mine. It's a relationship that joins you inseparably to others. And it's a relationship that calls us to respond in exactly the way that I think we want to, in ways that are exciting and dynamic and that matter for the world. Isn't this the way that we want to live it out? Peace is a relationship. Maybe, may we be assured of this peace as we remember that we are the people of God and remember that God has reconciled 
us to himself in Jesus Christ and has called us to do the same with each other and the world that we live in. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let us be peacemakers. Let us be peacemakers. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us, and that you have given us this gift of peace. Help us to be peacemakers that experience your peace more than just a feeling, but experience it in our relationship with you, experience it in our relationship with each other, and experience it in our relationships uh, with all those that we come into contact with, whether we like them or not. Help us to be an outpost of grace, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.